Will you take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? This will be the first of a two, perhaps even a three-part series on the dangerous deception of self-assurance. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 eventually, probably just the first four verses today. But in a moment, I would like to read that passage to you. But before I do, let me begin with a little story. I'll never forget a valuable object lesson on the danger of overconfidence that I once saw in the mountains of British Columbia when I lived there. And I can only wish I could have been more faithful over the years to putting into practice what I saw that day from a distance. I learned a lesson from a self-assured, probably about a two-year-old Mustang stallion that disrespected a young grizzly bear that was enjoying the bounty of blueberries on the side of a mountain. It was a fascinating thing to behold. The cocky little colt kept running at the bear kind of snapping his teeth a little bit, and he wouldn't get too close, but he'd get up to the bear, and then he would spin and kick up his heels and run back. And he kept doing this on and on, and the bear seemed to pay him no mind and just continued to enjoy the sumptuous berries. But what was interesting is with every approach and escape, the colt kept getting closer and closer and seemingly more emboldened. But the bear seemed to be bored with the whole thing. What the foolish horse did not realize is that the bear's indifference was only a ploy to get him to come just a little bit closer. I didn't realize this until I saw eventually what happened. After about six or eight of these encounters, the young stallion got more brazen and would kind of snap his teeth, I could see through the binoculars, kind of have his teeth out, and then he'd spin and he would run away. And when the foolish colt got within striking distance, suddenly that bear spun and reached out with the right hook and caught that colt in the jaw, broke his neck, pulled off half of his jaw, and the young stallion, within a few minutes, died. And the bear just wandered off about 100 feet and continued eating the berries. Like the arrogant horse, dear friends, we pride ourselves in seeing how close we can possibly get to idolatry, and immorality, rather than seeing how far we can flee from it. And like the bear, temptation is both brilliant and patient. Whether it's self-love, self-promotion, self-indulgence, selfishness, any form of idolatry, it seduces and it destroys And often we are too blind to see how overconfident we really are. And of course, Satan offers a myriad of enticements 
to draw us in through his world system. The Apostle John summarized this. He said, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh refers to the, the ignoble cravings of our evil heart. The lust of the eyes describe those worldly enticements that, that we see visually that can cause us to become dissatisfied and, and covetous and idolatrous. Seducing our thoughts and our wills to violate the word and the will of God, only to bring ruin to ourselves, to our family. The boastful pride of life refers to man's inherent arrogance, his self-adoration, his selfishness. And it's because of our inflated opinion of ourself, of our overconfidence in our abilities, that we tend to stretch the very limits of our Christian freedom. I can handle any entertainment, even if it contains some vulgarity and immorality, because I'm spiritual enough to overlook those things and not compromise. Unlike most people, I can handle my alcohol and social settings and private consumption without it ever gaining a hold on me. I can occasionally spend time alone with those of the opposite sex without being tempted to immorality. <laughs> I can be close friends with worldly people that have no fear of God and they not really affect me. Or like the Corinthian believers who said, we can eat meat offered to idols. God doesn't really care about that. We can join our friends in these immoral feasts and festivals that are a part of their trade guilds. We're mature. We're spiritual. We're not going to pay any attention to all of the immorality that's a part of that. That's not going to really bother us. We can enjoy our liberty in those gray areas. We know just how close we can get to the bear before he reaches out and gets us. Don't worry, we know how far we can go before being disqualified from effectively serving Christ. And to this kind of foolishness, Paul responds in chapter 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And dear friends, this is the heart of the passage that we will endeavor to understand beginning today. And what a heartbreak it is to see Christians who are frankly useless in Christian service. They were once overwhelmed with their sin and their pride. They were humbled by the gospel of grace. They were once on fire for Christ. They, they loved Christ and had a burden for the lost. They, they had a, a, an insatiable appetite for the word of God and a habit of prayer. They longed to know more of the presence and the power of God. But something happened. Oh, they're still faithful in giving and coming to church. Still faithful in right doctrine. And for the most part, right living. But the fire is gone. And they know it down deep in their heart. There's no evidence that God is really using them. They're just going through the motions of the Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit is sickly on the vine of their life. Moreover, it is sparse. Something has happened. And in the core of their being, they will have to admit that there's no real joy. There's no real power. And they're not being used in serving Christ. 
like the saints at Ephesus in Revelation 2, just 40 years after they were founded, while all of their spiritual ducks were in a row, the Lord nevertheless had this against them, you have left your first love. Folks, how does this happen? And the answer is we become self-assured. We become presumptuous, overconfident, arrogant, lazy, distracted. We stop walking by the Spirit and we allow ourselves to be ruled by the flesh. And instead of being suspect of our spirituality, we become satisfied with it. Yea, even proud of it. After all, we go to Calvary Bible Church. Such presumption sets in motion a slow and almost imperceptible defection that gradually brings us to a place we thought we could never be. Some will eventually see it, many won't. But those that do will realize they fail to heed Paul's warning that we have here in this text. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Dear friends, all of us must guard against the dangerous deception of self-assurance. And that brings us to the text. Knowing the power of pride that can justify the abuse of Christian liberty in gray areas, Paul has been arguing, you will recall, that the strong should be sensitive to the weak and not cause them to stumble. In chapter 9, he emphasized the importance of being sensitive to, to how our actions might affect others. He wanted to win the race of winning people to Christ, you will recall. He was passionate uh, about his testimony and service to Christ, and he talked about how that's going to require self-denial, it's going to require self-discipline. In verse 26, he said, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The disqualification now does not refer to losing his salvation. What he's concerned with is losing the opportunity and the ability to effectively serve Christ. In chapter 9, therefore, he emphasizes how the abuse of Christian liberty might impact others. And now in chapter 10, he emphasizes how the abuse of Christian liberty might impact us, might impact you and me. And he uses the arrogance of Israel, ancient Israel, as a graphic illustration of those who, having experienced God's deliverance, became self-assured, became overconfident with respect to their spiritual condition. They became presumptuous. They would see how close to evil they could possibly come without being harmed. And as a result, they were rendered disqualified, useless from service to God. They were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for each day the faithless spies were in Canaan, as you will recall. Only Joshua and Caleb, who feared and trusted the Lord, were allowed into the promised land. And so that's the background as we come to this text. 
1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This passage is so practical when properly understood and applied. And folks, we're going to all see ourselves as we go through this. And if you don't, you've already been blinded by your own pride. And it is just a matter of time before you will experience the consequences of your fall. I wish to look at this text over the next several weeks under three categories. First of all, we're going to see the resources of the redeemed. That's what we're going to focus on today. Then the next time we get together, we'll look at the responsibility of the redeemed and finally, the reassurance of the redeemed. Well, let's notice first the illustration of Israel's arrogance and false security in the first four verses under this first heading, the resources of the redeemed. He begins by saying, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. In other words, I want you to reflect upon this issue of being disqualified due to the misuse of Christian liberty that I've been addressing in the previous chapters. I want you to see how the failure to exercise self-denial and self-discipline is a slippery slope of self-assurance that will ultimately ruin your testimony and your usefulness in service to Christ. I want to illustrate to you the danger of spiritual pride and overconfidence because you, Corinthians, have a false sense of security. You think you're really mature. You think you can handle all of these things, that you have no need to really guard your heart against the deceptions of the flesh and of the devil? You think that just because you have been saved by grace and you enjoy all of the blessings of God in your church that you can skate on the thin ice of Christian freedoms without falling through. But I want you to listen up. This is urgent. And again, he is 
ultimately saying to them, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, it's really interesting what he does. He begins with four illustrations of God's blessings upon Israel, supernatural resources that proved his watch care over them. They experienced four things, his presence in a pillar of cloud, his deliverance in the parting of the sea, his guidance through the leadership of Moses, and his sustenance in the provision of food and water. Yet what we're going to see is they squandered their privilege. They became self-confident, self-assured. They let their guard down. They ignored their need for self-denial and self-discipline. They misused their freedom. They fell into sin, and they were disqualified from service to God and died in the wilderness. So Paul begins by getting their attention. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, although most of the Corinthian believers were Gentiles, there were also Jews amongst them. And while Gentiles are not natural biological descendants of Abraham, he was their spiritual father. In fact, in Romans 4.11, we read that Abraham is, quote, the father of all who believe. And the Lord promised in Genesis 12 and verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, referring to Abraham. But we must also remember that just because the Jews were physical descendants, It did not mean that all of the Jews were spiritual descendants. Remember in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, he goes on to say in verse 8, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, just by way of reminder here theologically, this is important for you to remember, Gentiles, we Gentiles, I'm a Gentile, I think most of you are from Gentile backgrounds. We are the wild olive branches that were engrafted into the vine of Abrahamic covenantal blessing. Romans 11, verse 17, some of the branches were broken off, referring to the unproductive branches of fruitless, unfaithful, idolatrous Israel. Some of them, not all of them. There has always been and there always will be a remnant. But he says some of the branches were broken off. And you being a wild olive, in other words, you productive, believing branches, you Gentiles from all the nations who believe in Messiah, you being a wild olive were grafted in among them. In other words, grafted in among the remnant of believing Jews. And then he says, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, it's important here. We do not become Israel. We do not replace Israel. But we, as he says, become partakers with them. We share with them the blessings of the rich root of Israel's covenants, of the covenant promises of hope and salvation in Messiah. We understand this even better through Paul's words in Ephesians 2.11. There Paul addresses those who were formerly Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the Jews, and he says this, quote, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, at one time, the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth or the citizenship of Israel. They were not part of the nation state. They were, they were strangers to the covenant promises. Or in keeping with Paul's metaphor in Romans uh, 11, verse 17, they had not yet been graciously engrafted into the root of Abrahamic blessing as wild, uncultivated stock. And so as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.11, they had not yet been brought near by the blood of Christ, but now we have. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? What a picture, dear friends, of God's mercy toward undeserving Gentiles. And all because of his grace, we share the spiritual blessings of Israel. Jesus described the grafting in of the wild branches in Matthew 21, verse 43, when he declared to the chief priests and Pharisees, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. A reference to the church. What Peter called a holy nation in 1 Peter 2, 9. And this will progress through the centuries. According to Romans 11, beginning in verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Referring to all of the elect is Jewish people that are left alive at the end of the tribulation. So eventually the fruit of the kingdom the church will produce will include a repentant and regenerated nation of Israel. So the church has now become the temporary custodians of divine truth. It does not permanently replace Israel, as Matthew 23 and Romans 11 clearly reveal. Now back to Paul's illustrations here. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So first of all, I want you to notice what he's saying here that they experienced his presence in a pillar of cloud. Folks, we cannot even begin to imagine what that must have been like. I hope I can somehow take you there. They were all under the cloud. This is a reference to the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire that led and protected the Israelites in the wilderness. Now think about it. For 400 years, the Israelites endured the horrors of Egyptian slavery. And then finally, God hears their cry and in faithfulness to his covenant promises that he made with Abraham some 600 years earlier, he sends Moses to deliver them and bring them into the promised land. And he allows the people to witness the the 10 plagues that God sent to judge the Egyptians, nine of which were, were designed to make a mockery of Egyptian deities. And then they experience God passing over and thus preserving their firstborn because of the blood of the Lamb. And then to reassure them of his guidance and protection, what does he do? He leads them with the symbol of his presence, the glorious cloud of his Shekinah. So Paul is reminding them all here of the exodus, the deliverance of God's people. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud we read about this in Exodus thirteen twenty one. It says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day. By the way, pillar in Hebrew means something standing. 
Therefore, it, it's more of a, of a column. It's a, a tall, vertical, cylindrical-shaped cloud, like a pillar that would support a building. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, and that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And folks, we know from other passages that that cloud was a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, of Yahweh himself, not merely something that he sent. It was previously seen in the burning bush. Stephen explains this in his sermon in, in Acts 7. And so this appeared, this column, this dark cloud, it was viewed then during the sunlit day, but it was a pillar of fire that they saw by night. So it was easy on the eyes during the day, and it lit up the night for a couple of million Jews at night. An amazing thing. By the way, this is consistent with the descriptions of the cloud that covered the top of Mount Sinai as described in, in Exodus 24. And it was also described as descending upon the tent of meeting when God spoke to Moses in Exodus 33. I get goosebumps when I think about it. For example, in Exodus 14, beginning in verse 19, it says the angel, or in other words, the messenger of God, which is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the, the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus... The one did not come near the other all night. So in other words, in order to protect the Israelites from the Egyptians, he used this cloud. Absolutely awesome. Whether by day or by night, the Israelites saw the supernatural realities of Yahweh leading them, a visual reminder that he was protecting them that he was establishing amongst them the realities of being a witness nation, a witness nation of the unfathomable glories of God and his redeeming grace. And this is precisely Paul's point here. Our fathers were all under the cloud. I want you to remember that, brethren, is what he's saying. And the word all is used five times in four verses which affirms that the fact that everyone experienced these supernatural blessings. Obviously, they could all see it. What a marvelous privilege to be the recipient of such divine intervention and unmerited favor. Now, remember where he's going with all of this. He's recounting the astounding privileges of Israel, the staggering resources that they had at their disposal to be a witness nation, Yet despite all of this, they became proud. They failed to guard against a false sense of, of security. They became self-assured and self-confident, squandered their privilege, misused their freedom, fell into idolatry and immorality and, and, and rebellion, pushing God's patience to the limit. And thus they were disqualified from useful service to God. And he judged them accordingly. Paul's point is this, Corinthians, 
And you folks at Calvary Bible Church, learn from their mistakes. Don't let your foolish pride cause you to get too close to the bear. Guard your heart against false security, against becoming overconfident and self-assured. Exercise self-denial. Learn to discipline yourself in the gray areas. Pursue holiness. Run the race to win and so on. Well, not only did they experience his presence in a pillar of cloud, but secondly, they experienced his deliverance in the parting of the sea. My goodness, if that column of cloud and fire wasn't enough, now we've got the parting of the sea. I I can't even begin to comprehend what that must have been like. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Pillar of cloud protects them from the Egyptian charioteers and, and then suddenly God parts the Red Sea for them. It's amazing, isn't it? The same rod that Moses used to bring judgment upon the Egyptians suddenly brings deliverance to the Israelites. And two million Israelites walk across the sea on dry land. And then the water drowns the Egyptians. Boy, talk about getting too close to the bear. They got way too close. Moreover, thirdly, they experienced his guidance, God's guidance, through the leadership of Moses. Verse 2 says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now let me clarify something here. The context here argues against the notion that some have that this is speaking of, of a baptismal ceremony. Whenever we hear the word baptism in English, we immediately think of, of a baptismal ceremony. I don't know, the Presbyterians might think that that they were sprinkled by the water in the cloud, and the Baptists might think that they were completely immersed by the sea. I'm just joking. I don't know if anybody really thinks that. But, of course, there's a big problem because there was no water in the cloud, and they walked across the sea on dry land. So it certainly can't be that. But baptism here speaks of being initiated or immersed into something or... It carries the idea of identification. So at salvation, think about this. We are immediately baptized into Christ. We're united to him. We're made one with him. We identify with him. Galatians 3.27, for all who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And this is the idea that Paul has in mind here. The guidance of the cloud and their safe passage through the sea caused them to to identify with Moses and, and recognize his divine commission as the Lord's servant that was leading them. They, they acknowledged him as the mediator of the divine manifestations that were all around them. And as a result, they were immersed into fellowship with Moses and submitted to him as the Lord's servant. And what an incredible blessing he must have been to the Israelites. And because of this union, they were connected to him, and they were obligated to follow him faithfully as unto the Lord. Paul's reminding them of all of this. So they experienced his presence in a pillar of cloud, his deliverance in the parting of the sea, his guidance through the leadership of Moses, and finally, he uses the illustration of how he sustained them. So my fourth little point here is they experienced his sustenance in the provision of food and water. Notice verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. 
and the rock was Christ. Now, be careful here. This is not a reference to God's doing some kind of spiritual work in the hearts of, of the Israelites, as, I, as some might argue. I do not believe that because we, we, certainly not all the Israelites were regenerated by faith when they were delivered from, from Egypt. Some of them were saved by faith before that happened. Others were saved in the wilderness. Others were saved in the promised land. Many were not saved at all. So their deliverance from Egypt does not mean there was some type of national, universal salvation of the Israelites. Romans 9 makes this abundantly clear. So this whole analogy that Paul is using with Israel here in 1 Corinthians 10 is not meant to be a picture of of, of Israel's salvation and then losing their salvation. Rather, what Paul is dealing with here is the danger of disqualification in service to Christ. They were supposed to be a witness nation. And they had all of the resources to be that. But again, they failed to exercise self-denial and self-discipline. They fell into sin. So God sat them on the bench, you might say. Likewise, he's saying to the church at Corinth, to the saints at Calvary Bible Church, and every other church, you are to be a witness nation here. You are, you are a holy nation, as Peter says. Like Israel, you've been blessed by God. You've been given all of these resources to enjoy. So don't get cocky and let your guard down, because if you do, God cannot use you. You'll be set aside, disqualified from service. Now back to the text. The spiritual food and drink speaks of the supernatural or, or spiritual source of their provision. Obviously a reference to, in particular, the manna and the water that God provided for them. And so to that end, they were spiritually sustained. They derived their sustenance from a, a spiritual, not a, a natural source. It came through the unseen Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 4, he says, For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Interesting statement. I believe Paul here is alluding to an old but very popular Jewish legend that his audience would have understood. That legend relates how the the rock that Moses struck actually rolled along the journey with the Israelites all through their wilderness wanderings until the death of Moses, and then it suddenly disappeared in the Sea of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's not that Paul believed that, but he's using this analogy, this legend, I should say, to get a point across. In Paul's reference to the rock that Moses struck in the legend, it's interesting, Paul uses the term petros in Greek, which refers to a large stone or even a boulder. But when he goes on to explain, and that rock was Christ, he doesn't use petros, he uses petra, which speaks of a much larger rock, a massive rock, a monolithic rock of Gibraltar, so to speak. So, though there's no indication that Paul believed the legend, he's using it, to, he, using it here to make a greater point. He's saying, yes, indeed, a, a rock did follow you, but it was not 
a Petros. It wasn't just a boulder that Moses struck to bring forth water. It was a Petra, a massive Gibraltar, a supernatural rock, a pre-existent, self-existent, uncreated creator of the universe rock. It was the Messiah. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that sustained you. He is the one that protected you. So in keeping with Paul's illustrations, again, they experienced his presence in a pillar of cloud, his deliverance in the parting of the sea, his guidance through the leadership of Moses, his sustenance in the provision of food and water. Utterly incomprehensible. The ineffable privileges that they enjoyed because of God's grace. Resources of the redeemed. And yet, notice verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Wow, isn't that astounding? I mean, do you get the effect here? I mean, you would expect him to say, in light of these magnificent resources and blessings, the people were deeply humbled and they doubled down in faithful obedience. Because of all of the Lord's gracious deliverance and unfailing love, they doubled down on their commitment to self-denial and self-discipline so that they could run in such a way as not without aim and box in such a way as not beating the air. They disciplined their bodies to make it their slave so that when they had preached to others, they themselves would not be disqualified. Isn't that what you would expect him to say? But no... He says, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. These things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And we will examine that and the rest the next time we get together. Dear Christians, the point with all of this is learn to guard yourself. Don't be overconfident. Like our spiritual ancestors, we've been blessed with unimaginable resources and spiritual blessings. We're privileged beyond measure. And yet, because of our pride, we can think we're invincible, right? We can think we're spiritually mature, that we can stand against temptation and prevail. But in reality, we are weak, we are feeble. We are utterly dependent upon Christ. Didn't Jesus say, for apart from me, you can do nothing? You know, folks, what makes pride so dangerous is its ability to convince us that we are immune to it. We all think we can write the book, Humility, and how I achieved it overnight. Because of pride, we like to see how close we can get to the bear rather than how far we can run from it. Yeah, I can handle my alcohol without any fear of becoming a slave to it. Yeah, I can dominate conversations and be the star in the Sunday school class without exalting myself. Oh yeah, I can enjoy entertainment, even if it's got some nudity and vulgarity in it, without ever lowering my standard of holiness and being disqualified from service before God. 
yeah, I can promote myself on Facebook and not really exalt myself. Yeah, I can hang out with ungodly friends without becoming like them. Yeah, I mean, I can complain about the disappointments in life without dishonoring God. Well, I can criticize and and control other people without being rendered of no use to service to Christ. I can indulge my flesh with material things and buy things that I can't afford without really becoming a poor steward of God's resources and having him put me on the bench. And on it goes, folks. And when this happens, you render yourself useless to service to Christ. And you perish in the wilderness. I close with a quote from Spurgeon that really spoke to my heart. He says, none have more pride than those who dream that they have none. You may labor against vainglory till you conceive that you are humble, and the fond conceit of your humility will prove to be pride in full bloom. You'll have to bear with the old English here. It apes humility full well, and is then most truly pride. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. It flourishes on that which should be its poison, glorying in its shame. It is a sin with a thousand shapes. By perpetual change, it escapes capture. It seems impossible to hold it. The vapory imp slips from you, only to appear in another form and mock your fruitless pursuit. To die to pride and self. One would need to die himself. Oh, dear Christian, be suspect of your spirituality. Never be self-assured by it. If you think you stand, be careful because you're ready to fall and become useless in your service to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clear admonition that we receive from your word and certainly as we examine this text we can see our own frailties here and that's why you have reminded us so clearly of the the importance of being suspect of our spirituality Lord I pray that you will help us all to take heed to this message And certainly, Lord, for those who are too proud to humble the knee and confess their need for Christ as Savior, I pray that you will convict them today, that you will humble them, and that they they might fall on their face before the the cross and cry out for your saving grace. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Cause these things to bear much fruit in our lives for our good and for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.
O-R-G. <laughs>